Good afternoon, everyone. We have a few stragglers coming in, but I thought we would get started. Um, welcome to the George Eastman Museum. My name is Kathy Connor, and I'm the curator of the George Eastman Legacy Collection, and I am thrilled to see so many of you here on such a crappy day outside. And uh, so, uh, yes, that's right. That's it. As, uh, and you're in for a real treat. Um, today, um, I am very pleased to introduce a colleague and a friend. Um, Jesse Pierce has worked with me for almost seven years now as the legacy archivist. And what Jesse does every day is basically answer innumerable information requests we get from all over the world, in addition to working with all of our researchers, pulling things out for them and making the collection accessible. But well, one of the things I think he enjoys the most about his job, in fact, I know he does, because he'll try to spend as much time as possible, is reading all of George Eastman's letters. And so today you're in for a treat because he's going to share with you some of the special ones that he has found that he thought were really interesting. I do want to encourage anyone that is interested in doing more research or learning more about any topic to come and make an appointment in the study center. We're open for all of you, members, docents, anyone. And I do, I'm thrilled how many docents I am seeing here. And also I'd like to uh, mention a few of, I believe, archivists and scholars of George Eastman. We have Betsy Breyer that braved the weather to come out today. She's in the back. I believe I saw Lois Gouch come in. Lois, wave your hand. I think you're back there. There we go. <laughs> it's Lois that I credit with forcing the Eastman Kodak Company to give me those letters in the first place when she retired. So uh, that's because of her that we have them here at the museum. And then I believe Carl Kabelak, but I, there you go, Carl's over here too. And Carl was the one that really single-handedly, along with staff at the U of R Library, organized the Eastman Letters and the Eastman Collection there. And many years ago, when we did not have an archivist or a curator in the Eastman Collection, a lot of these things were given over to the U of R, and they provided access to them. They've just now been returned to us, and so we are starting to go through putting them into our database, cataloging them, and basically making them available to people on the web. So today, before I sit down and turn the podium over to Jesse, I want to encourage you after the talk today and questions and answers to take some time to go see a small exhibition that Jesse put together in conjunction with Dutch Connection. It's a look back at what Mr. Eastman was doing 100 years ago in 1917. In the exhibit cases, you'll have to walk through all the lovely flowers in the house so you can get a nice sense of spring, go on upstairs to the second floor. The exhibit is right on the landing there. And I think you'll really enjoy, um, enjoy it, and I encourage you to do so if not today, that exhibit will be up for a little while longer. Will the flowers pretty much end tomorrow? Okay. So without further ado, my friend and colleague, Jesse Pierce. All right. Thanks, everybody, for coming out today. I'm genuinely excited to share with you all what I've been up to for the past few years. Uh, the nature of our museum here and the nature of the different collections uh, Kathy and I are a, essentially a two-person department. We're kind of uh, sequestered upstairs, so I, didn't, I don't get to rub elbows a whole lot with other colleagues and other archivists. Uh, so there's people that I've worked with for many years that have no idea uh, what I've been up to the past few years, but I'm excited to share that uh, with you all today. Uh, my only request is that we save all the questions uh, until the end, because I'm probably going to go all the uh, 45 minutes. Uh, so again, I've been here almost seven years now, and the Legacy Collection upstairs has a lot of neat stuff. It's got Kodak advertisements, George Eastman's uh, vacation photos, uh, Kodak patents, camping equipment, all sorts of neat stuff. 
but it did not take me long to conclude that the gem of the collection upstairs was George Eastman's letters. Um, it's the most useful for researchers, it's the most useful for us, obviously, and I knew that posterity would best be served, that researchers would best be served, and that my time would best be spent cataloging these letters one by one, because we literally had no record. Uh, we knew that we had all of his letters, uh, but we didn't know specifically what we had. Uh, and so I spent three or four years uh, making that definitive index, so I'm excited to share what I found. Uh, most of what we have in terms of George Eastman's letters uh, come to us ultimately uh, way back from Alice Whitney Hutchison, who was George Eastman's secretary uh, from 1890 until his death in 1932. Uh, she meticulously filed away all of his incoming letters, the letters that went to him at Kodak State Street, and she also copied all of his outgoing letters uh, during all that time. Uh, I do want to point out that prior to 1890, when she came on board, uh, unfortunately, we do not have a whole lot. Uh, that is disappointing because the 1880s was the days of uh, the first flexible roll film, uh, Kodak camera, Eastman Walker roll holder, all these seminal inventions were really uh, 1880s. And we do have some correspondence from the 1880s, but not a whole lot. Uh, so what we have in terms of uh, George Eastman's outgoing copy letters, uh, like Kathy said, we inherited 40 bound volumes from Kodak uh, way back uh, 20 or 30 years ago. And what we have are 12 business volumes and 28 uh, personal volumes. You might ask, why the disparity? Why do we have so much more uh, personal correspondence? Well, the answer to that is because George Eastman went into the office every day. He actually worked uh, 10 to 5, Monday through Friday, and he did go into the office every Saturday in the mornings just to catch up on correspondence. He did make a daily trip up to Kodak Park, and so when it came to interacting with business colleagues, that was uh, very much done for the most part in person. Uh, he had meetings with Kodak associates every day. He would go to New York on a regular basis to confer with his lawyers. And, uh, you know, sometimes so far removed from that time period, we do forget that they did have telephones back in that day. So a lot of business matters were done in person and over the telephone, uh, which is why we have so much more correspondence uh, of a personal nature. Uh, when you take these 40 bound volumes and add them all together, it's 29,500 pages of copy letters. Often there's more than one copied letter on these thin uh, kind of onion skin pages. And here's what they look like. So on the left, I know it's kind of hard to see, but on the left you have the original typed letter that Georgie Smith's secretary typed up on the typewriter. Uh, you see it has the Kodak letterhead there at the top. And in the day before Xerox and photostats and copy machines, they had a really ingenious way of making copies back then called the letterpress process. And uh, essentially how it worked is um, they would have a, well, a letterpress. So as Eastman would dictate his letter to his secretary. She would type it up on the typewriter. He would sign it. And while that ink was still wet, they had like a blotter that would kind of press it up on these onion skin uh, thin pages. And so um, I want to point out that we do have relatively few of these original letters that went out to the correspondence. Uh, this particular letter went out to uh, London. Uh, relatively few of those original letters with the Kodak letterhead have come back. But we do have 29,500 pages of these exact imprints of those letters. Now, sometimes book publishers are disappointed. They want to feature the original 
letter, but I just have to pass on the news that all we have are the copies. So unless that original has returned to us, all we have is that imprint. And as you can see, sometimes it's faded. Uh, George Eastman's signature is faded, uh, but that's what we've got to uh, work with. As you can imagine, sometimes during that pressing process with the blotter, uh, the letters would get blurred and smudged. Uh, oftentimes the ink has just uh, really faded over the years. Uh, but again, it's, it's what we have to work with. In this particular example, uh, somebody went in and kind of hand wrote the words that are difficult uh, to read. But for the most part, you know, these thousands of pages are legible uh, for modern readers, which is, which is fantastic. And what, one of the neat things is uh, oftentimes when George Eastman would order a custom piece of camping equipment, for instance, he would make a drawing there at the bottom underneath his signature of what he was ordering. So some, sometimes we actually see the drawings that he did, sometimes postscripts uh, there at the bottom. But that overall, they are pretty uh, faded and blurry. Um, what we have in the back of every one of these bound volumes, let me go back a couple slides. There on the right, you see in the back of every bound volume is a handwritten index. And what George Eastman's secretary did when each volume was filled is she hand wrote an alphabetical index in the back so that she could go to the letters that she needed later on. Uh, as you can see in this particular example, uh, letters to W.I. Adams would be found on pages 252, 876, etc. So for decades, when people researched George Eastman's letters to particular recipients, let's say someone wanted to come in and look at uh, George Eastman's letters to Thomas Edison, they would literally have to go to 40 bound volumes, go to the index, and see if there were any particular letters in that volume to Thomas Edison. Uh, the most bang-for-the-buck project that we have ever tackled up in the study center was simply typing up those indexes into a spreadsheet. And of course, anybody that knows Excel and knows spreadsheets knows that you can sort it any way you want. You can sort it by last name, uh, organization, date, all that. But it was a relatively easy thing to do. I mean, it took a matter of weeks, but for the first time ever, we had an easy finding aid for George Eastman's outgoing letters. We had a record of every letter that he wrote. And uh, it was a relatively easy thing to say, all right, well, these 60 pages of this bound volume are you know, October 1881, and the next 38 pages are November 1881. So it was really easy to click and drag in Excel uh, and assign a year and a month to every letter. Um, assigning a specific date to every letter, my god, that, that was very tedious. That was my fall 2016, was assigning a specific date to every single letter. And it was so time consuming, so boring, but, uh, <laughs> but I did it. And so we do have a definitive list of every letter he wrote that we can arrange in chronological order. And uh, it's just kind of revolutionized how we uh, do our research. We did make the decision back in 2012 to have those outgoing bound volumes of copy letters scanned. Uh, this is the exact model of the Kurtas Skyview scanner uh, that we used. And we did that really for two reasons. One, because the original bound volumes were very fragile. The bindings were falling apart. Uh, as you can imagine, over the many, many decades that people had kind of gone through and rifled through the volumes, uh, pages had ripped. Uh, they're just in pretty rough shape. And so to preserve those, we had them scanned in high resolution. And the second motivation was ultimately we wanted to make searchable PDFs where we could actually search for uh, words. And um, so that's what we did back in 2012 and 2013 uh, with that exact model of the scanner. So the outgoing copy letters have been scanned. As I said, they've been indexed. 
it's our goal as a museum uh, later this year to have those online uh, for people to view. So fingers crossed, there's some reformatting that has to happen, uh, but I am hopeful that sometime this year we'll have those on our website for uh, anybody to view. We did uh, run an optical character recognition software through the letters. And basically, if you have a picture of text, what you have is still a picture, a JPEG or a TIFF file or anything. But what OCR software is capable of doing is it you know, reads the text and it generates copyable, uh, searchable text. Um, and it's just a wonderful uh, program that we have at our disposal today. Now, as you can see with this particular example, the results are mixed. If I was to take a pristine, pristine book and scan it and OCR it, the accuracy would be through the roof. But because many of these letters are faded, because the letters are blurry, we really did get mixed results. Uh, but the great thin, thing about technology is it just gets better and better with time. So realistically, I am confident that four or five years from now, we can just get an upgraded OCR software, rescan everything with the click of a button, and get better accuracy in the future. Uh, we did have a wonderful volunteer of ours, uh, Peter Thomas. He went to the original JPEGs, and he created black and white versions. He made the uh, background whiter and the text darker so as to increase that contrast. And um, as you can see, the letter on the left is pristine, um, but the OCR is kind of kind of gobbledygook. But I did want to show that to you. This is actually one of the few letters where Eastman mentions his opinion of babies. But were I to search that 29,500 pages of letters for the word babies, unfortunately, this letter would not come up. So at this point, you still have to have some human uh, element to find uh, what you need. But despite uh, the troubles that we encountered, uh, it has completely, completely revolutionized how we have researched. Um, on the left, it's kind of fuzzy, uh, but it's result, uh, results for the word brownie. I searched for the word brownie. Hundreds and hundreds of letters came up uh, where Eastman mentioned the word brownie. Not only can you search for a specific word, but you can also search for a specific phrase. Uh, so on the right is the search for the term, the phrase, was a boy. And when you do that, uh, you get a result that says, I have not had a dog since I was a boy. Uh, he was stolen by a boatman, and I remember that I cried myself to sleep for him. I never had another dog. Uh, something about grieving. Um, the next letter, I wish to say that when I was a boy, I was in the same position you are, having had to go to work when I was 14 years old. It was never any handicap to me and ought not be uh, to you. So it's just phenomenal what we've been able to do. It completely revolutionizes uh, how we research. So for the rest of our time together, I'm going to completely switch gears and I'm going to talk about the other half of our correspondence holdings which is the uh, incoming boxes, the letters that he received at Kodak from individuals and organizations. Uh, if you recall, with the bound volumes of correspondence, there was a handwritten index in the back of each one, and we just had that uh, shortcut of just simply typing it up. With the loose incoming letters, there was nothing. There was no shortcut this time. I knew that if we were going to catalog every incoming letter, it had to be done box by box, letter by letter. And it, as you can see, it took the better part of three years, three and a half years, but I did finally finish it. 
uh, in the summer of 2016. I'm sure Kathy was annoyed sometimes with me, uh, bunched over the letters, uh, but I did it. I, I went through every single letter and cataloged it. I do want to point out this afternoon that those incoming letters that he received are not scanned. Only the outgoing copy letters were scanned. But for the first time, we have a definitive record of every letter he sent and every letter he received. And so when you open up one of these boxes, that's what you get. It's, it's still roughly in alphabetical order. And uh, thanks to my spreadsheet, uh, we have 49,809 letters that his secretary filed away. And again, there was no shortcut. It took years of going through uh, letter by letter. So for the rest of the time, I'm going to uh, talk about what I found inside of these boxes. Um, like I said, we, we made uh, 154 spreadsheets for the 154 boxes. Eventually, we just combined it into one massive spreadsheet. Um, now, when I first started tackling the incoming boxes, um, I strictly made note of who wrote the letter, what institution they represented, the date of the letter, whether it was handwritten or typed. I did a page count, and then I moved on to the next letter. I wanted to tackle this in a time-efficient way, uh, so I was not reading the letters at all. Uh, that was not within the scope of this, of this project. Um, but I quickly discovered that there really was a benefit to um, literally skimming every letter for five or ten seconds just to see what they were discussing. Um, so I added, a, as you can see, there are keywords and subject column. Um, and again, that has completely revolutionized how, how people research. I want to be very clear this afternoon. I did not read every letter. That was outside the scope of this project. And to be honest, it's not my job. My job is to make a, a definitive record, a definitive index of what we did have. But I quickly skimmed every letter for five or ten seconds just to make some uh, searchable terms so that researchers could find uh, letters of interest on their specific topics. Uh, up here on display is April 1917, so pretty much almost 100 years ago, and that's when the United States finally entered World War I. If a letter was of particular interest, a, a potential use in a future exhibit, or in a uh, letter that I just thought was cool, I just kind of highlighted it to make it, to make it stand out. Uh, but again, the wonderful thing about spreadsheets is you can sort it any way you want, uh, but uh, the, de the default setting is in chronological uh, order. So what did I find? Uh, I found a lot of bad handwriting. Uh, Eastman himself had ban bad handwriting, but his early business partner, uh, William Walker, had the worst handwriting. Uh, like I said, I could not read every letter. It was outside the scope of this project. But um, you know, if, if you take your time with this letter, you can read it. It, it just takes time. But my goal was to just pick out a couple keywords, a couple key phrases uh, in this letter um, in the top. Walker mentions the Blair suit. So in the spreadsheet, I put up the Blair lawsuit. Um, so it is legible, but again, my goal was not to read every letter. It was to get a couple key terms, catalog it, and move on. Um, it sounds boring, but most of the letters, particularly in the personal boxes, was just boring, kind of everyday routine matters, paying the bills, uh, insurance stuff. We all know that Eastman's wealth, the vast majority of it anyway, came from Kodak and from Kodak stock. But the fact is, is he was a wise investor, or at least he listened to wise financial investors. But he invested in railroad companies, uh, utility companies, municipal bonds, uh, the Liberty Loan during World War I. He did generate a lot of wealth 
in that regard. Uh, Eastman was not a very good driver, so there is uh, quite a bit on the accidents that he got into. Uh, I found it funny in 1905, some of the phrases they used uh, back then, Eastman's automobile and Frank's bicycle had a rather sudden meeting on Main Street in 1905. Uh, but just a lot of boring, uh, everyday routine stuff. Uh, I was particularly intrigued when old friends would get back in touch with Eastman after many years, sometimes schoolmates from when he was a boy. Uh, I did glean from one letter that Eastman did have a godmother. Her name was Caroline Lee. Uh, that was news to me. Uh, I did find one letter uh, written many, many years after the fact in which somebody vividly recalls uh, in extraordinary detail um, Eastman's first camera purchase in 1877, so that was a really neat find. Um, as many of you know, Eastman's father died when he was very young, so Eastman was very keen to, uh, to hear from people that had known his father um, and had taken classes with his father at the Eastman Commercial College, uh, but Eastman was always interested to hear from those people that knew his parents and uh, more about his family uh, ancestry. There were some neat letters from children. Uh, children would write Eastman just thanking him for making photography possible, uh, thanking him for donating musical instruments to the public schools. Uh, in 1930, uh, with that anniversary Kodak camera, every 12-year-old got the uh, free camera. In uh, 1930, a 12-year-old wrote Eastman uh, thanking him for the camera, but at the end of the letter he says, P.S. Mama says you swear something awful, but so do I. We men must stick together. <laughs> I love it. You can't make it up. As you can imagine, uh, many of these boxes are filled with people asking for money, both uh, individuals, uh, corporations, organizations. On the letter uh, in the left is two sisters in Kansas. One day they summoned the courage to write George Eastman requesting these particular dresses from a magazine. Uh, in the letter they complained that the boys in their family got all the new clothes, that they got all the hand-me-downs, and they summoned the courage to write Eastman. And his response is actually pretty funny. I think Eastman was inclined to, to get these dresses for them just for their sheer audacity in writing him, but his response is, uh, do your parents know that you wrote this letter? Uh, get back to me and we'll talk about it. They never got back in touch with them, so apparently their parents did not know. Uh, on the right, you see a letter from George Eastman's nephew, Royal Andrus. Uh, Royal was the black sheep of the family. He and Eastman never really got along. Uh, but despite this tension in the family, Royal did receive um, a sizable, sizable monthly allowance, which, you know, if you inflated it to today's dollars, he could easily live off of it. But every once in a while, Royal would request uh, more money outside of that usual allowance. In this particular letter from 1916, he says, I need $200 and need it badly. May I have it? And as you can see from George Eastman's okay at the bottom, you know, that's his okay to his secretary to go make the transaction uh, on his behalf. It might sound uh, strange, but in the incoming letters of George Eastman, we have incoming letters from George Eastman. And that's because he would take trips. When he would go away, he would write the office um, particularly as he got older, uh, he would travel around the world, travel around the country, and upon reaching his destination, he would always write you know, or uh, telegram the office telling his secretary that he had arrived at his destination safely. And, uh, you know, as the years go on, every single time he telegrams his secretary, he ends the telegram with everything lovely, everything lovely. But in this particular telegram right here, he's on a second African safari, he's in Egypt. 
Uh, a fire has just broken out on the train. He's escaped with his life in his pajamas. All of his luggage is destroyed, but he ends with everything else lovely. So <laughs> you got to love a sense of humor. Uh, the largest party ever held here at the house during Eastman's lifetime was a New Year's party of 1914. Um, there were two temporary uh, pavilions constructed outside, one for dancing and one for dining. I think he sent out, sent out about 1,200 uh, invitations, and I think about 900 people came. Uh, one of the neatest finds that I chanced upon was the program, uh, the music program for that night. So to have the music program for the largest party uh, ever held here is, is quite something. Uh, in a similar vein, the Edison Radio Hour in 1929, they started broadcasting the favorite music of famous people. And so they got in touch with Eastman, and they gave him this massive, massive uh, checklist of songs, and they asked him to select his eight favorite songs. And as you can see on the right, he did so. And so we now have his favorite uh, iTunes kind of playlist, uh, his eight favorite songs right there. Our organ guys were ecstatic about this. They knew that he liked these songs anyway, but to definitively know his eight favorite songs was quite something. Uh, interspersed throughout all these boxes was a lot of neat artwork. Uh, some of it was of a scientific nature. Um, others of it was um, in the 1920s, George Eastman took um, a real liking and passion to urban planning, uh, city planning. And this is a plan for a potential uh, post office directly over uh, the Genesee River. You see an industrial museum there that never quite saw the light of day. Um, but just a lot of neat artwork interspersed in these boxes. Here's a picture of the elephant uh, from the Jonas Brothers uh, taxidermist in Long Island. Uh, in 1930, George Eastman did have his artwork, his paintings in the house, appraised and conserved. Uh, this was a wonderful, wonderful find. Uh, the diagram on the left where it says salon, that's the living room. And where it says sitting room on the right, that is now the uh, billiard room. But what this is, is it's a definitive list of every painting downstairs in those two rooms and exactly where it hung. So for restoration purposes, this is just phenomenal, uh, phenomenal uh, documentation. I was particularly intrigued when uh, newspaper and magazine writers would get in touch with Eastman about articles that they were writing about him. Uh, oftentimes what I found is that um, authors and publishers would actually come out to Rochester. They would stay a couple days uh, here at the mansion. Uh, so they got a unique view into his everyday life. Uh, they would usually interview Eastman after his post-breakfast cigarette. And uh, so they really did get a unique view of what it was like to live here. Uh, the docents in the room, if you have not read the uh, System Magazine article from October 1920, it is gold. It is the best article written about George Eastman uh, during his lifetime. It's many, many pages, and Eastman essentially himself tells his story, lays out his business philosophy. If you need a copy of it, stop up to the study center, uh, study center sometime and we'll get you a copy of it. But I was very, very intrigued with these uh, old articles. And the neat thing is, is uh, Google Books is actually uh, scanning old magazines like crazy. So once I found the date, once I found the magazine, uh, I went on Google Books, did a search for it, and more often than not, I was able to find an online copy uh, for free. Uh, but that's the, that's the future is digitization. Uh, some of these uh, magazine articles featured really neat 
uh, illustrations of Eastman at different points uh, in his life. This book right here uh, was written in 1922. It's called When They Were Boys, and it was a children's book geared toward uh, young boys. Uh, and uh, Eastman has a chapter in here, Edison, Theodore Roosevelt. So many people uh, that were Eastman's contemporaries have a chapter in here. And it's all about overcoming adversity, overcoming obstacles, perseverance. Um, and so they actually got in touch with Eastman requesting a picture of him from his younger days. And as you can see there, uh, he provided that picture um, but some of these illustrations are just wonderful. But often uh, when children get in touch with us to write a report on Eastman, uh, this is the first thing to start with. It's a really well done uh, chapter on Eastman in this book. Let's switch gears and talk about Kodak for a bit. Um, as you can see here, some of the telegrams are in code, uh, particularly when Kodak State Street was getting in touch with um, foreign uh, international uh, Kodak installations, they would write in code, uh, especially when talking about personnel or uh, uh, sensitive formulas. And as you can see on this particular telegram, somebody at Kodak State Street had a code in which they decoded uh, the nonsense. But a lot of the telegrams are still uh, nonsense without that code. Um, I couldn't tell what they were what they were saying. For whatever reason, we've had an uptick in recent years in the amount of researchers looking into the very fascinating topic of Kodak's early international expansion. Uh, it's a really, really neat topic, and the answers are in uh, George Eastman's letters, but you really have to search for them. Uh, but I did chance upon this uh, report written by Joseph Thatcher Clark in 1908. Uh, Clark was Eastman's European expert on all things, and he generated this really lengthy report in 1908 um, after a trip all around Europe and he uh, photographs many, many Kodak dealers uh, from around the time period. And under every single caption is a very specific caption about what the Kodak dealer is doing, how they're using uh, the Kodak trademark and signage and all that. So that's just a phenomenal find for these researchers looking into Kodak's early uh, international uh, expansion. This is my favorite right here. All right. So a lot of the letters, particularly in the business boxes, featured early experimental uh, film strips, sometimes experimental uh, papers, experimental photos. There was really a lot of neat finds um, scattered in these business boxes. In 1905, there was an early color process that didn't quite pan out, uh, but you see it there on the left. Um, and I saw that, I was like, that's Fievel Mouskowitz, like to a T. So yes, in my spreadsheet, I did say Fievel Mouskowitz. Uh-oh, I lost it. Mm -mm. No. <laughs> oh, did it come disconnected? Ah, oh, there we go. Thank you, Kate. So... Fievel Mouskowitz. Uh, so yes, in the spreadsheet I did say Fievel Mouskowitz, but I love that photo. And again, there's a lot of neat uh, early experimental uh, films and emulsions and postcards and papers uh, stapled to these to these old letters. Um, we get we get asked on a somewhat regular basis if our archive contains Kodak employee records. 
Uh, the fact is, is we really do not have employee records, but one of the neat finds in the business boxes is every once in a while an entire department at Kodak would collectively thank Eastman for the bonuses, uh, for the wage dividends, for uh, after uh, World War I during the rise of communism and socialism, uh, entire departments would collectively pledge their allegiance to Eastman, to America, and that was really neat to see. Um, it would be uh, a good volunteer project uh, perhaps to type up these names so we would have a better sense of who worked in what department if the names are uh, legible, that is. One of the really, really neat finds was a letter that I found from uh, Kitty Waldron to George Eastman in 1919. Inside the box was only the letter, but it became very clear when I looked at the letter that originally she had enclosed a photograph. And in this letter, she vividly told you, uh, you know, these three uh, early women employees of George Eastman in 1884, and she lists them one by one. You know, four women in the back row, three women in the middle row, two in the front. And I, I thought, my gosh, we've got we've to find this photo. So I asked Kathy, I was like, Kathy, have you ever seen uh, 1884 photograph of three rows of early Kodak employees, and if you know Kathy, she's like, of course I do. And so she went <laughs> right into the vault, uh, straight to the box where it was, and we're as confident as we can possibly be that we've now reunited uh, this letter and the photograph. So to know every single one of their names is a rarity. We really do have a lot of uh, group portraits of employees at Kodak, but relatively few of them uh, can we identify every single person. But because this letter and the photograph have been uh, reunited, we now know every single one of their names uh, there from 1884. So that was a really cool find. Overwhelmingly, Eastman was thanked uh, for his philanthropy, for his, uh, you know, fatherhood kind of figure to his employees, for uh, making Rochester a better place to live and work. Uh, but it would not be fair of me to uh, skip over the criticism that he received, because he was, he was criticized in his day. Um, when he got into local politics with the city manager uh, form of government in the 1920s, he was kind of accused sometimes of being a political boss. The people that he wanted to go into positions got those positions. Um, during World War I, Eastman was made uh, the head of the fundraising effort for the Red Cross. And uh, Eastman would absolutely resort to arm twisting uh, to raise these funds. Remember, he was treasurer of Kodak, and so he knew the large shareholders. He knew the exact dividend payments that you were getting on a regular basis. So if he thought you could give more, he would make you give more. He was actually a proponent of having the Red Cross have access to uh, income tax returns so that they could see who was being stingy. Uh, but if he wanted you to give money, you would give money. Uh, in 1925, Eastman was accused, um, you are helping to erect a machine, and that machine is crushing us. We are becoming its servants, its victims. Uh, later, he was accused of having a stranglehold on the means of distribution of photographic goods. This is something that I will have to look into further. I didn't find anything on my first search, uh, but apparently, precisely uh, 100 years ago, there was a strike of girls employed in the film department at Kodak Park, and the, uh, one of the editors of the Rochester Herald wrote Eastman saying, we wonder how Mr. Eastman can give so much to charity at the same time that he employs efficiency experts to skillfully cut and lower the pay of the girls and others in his employ at Kodak Park. So that's something that I'll have to look into further, uh, but apparently 100 years ago there was a, a strike of girls in the, uh, in the film department. 
Um, during World War I, managers were essentially forcing their employees to buy uh, government bonds, liberty bonds. Some people complained that they were losing positions because they were not buying uh, those bonds. In 1923, someone wrote that a person almost signs his life and soul away when he enters Eastman's employ. Early on, he was criticized for hiring Catholics. Uh, that uh, didn't become an issue later on, but early on it was a very big issue that some people would complain about in their particular uh, departments. Every once in a while, a Kodak employee, an old uh, Kodak employee, would get in touch with Eastman and complain about newly uh, created positions that they didn't think were, were necessary. Um, one person, uh, an anonymous person in 1920 wrote Eastman, uh, complaining about high salaries to new positions, and they said, forget so much welfare stuff. You know, you're doing a lot of welfare stuff, but just treat the old employees rightly. Um, there was a dissatisfaction among employees with present wages, according to a 1919 study. And again, uh, post-World War I, that was the rise of communism, the rise of socialism, and it was in 1919 that Kodak established an industrial relations uh, department at Kodak to kind of uh, improve uh, relations with labor. And um, I, I think it was in 1919 that Eastman signed away a third of his stock to the employees. So I mean, he, he combated this by treating his employees uh, right. But again, he did receive uh, criticism. Um, the letter that made Eastman the most angry, that inspired the most uh, ire when he read it, was a letter from F.F. F. Robeson in 1929. Uh, he accused men like Eastman uh, being the greatest stumbling block to a poor man living a Christian life. This was in the regard to uh, the Italian dental dispensary, uh, while American children go, go hungry. Um, Eastman's response, I've got it here if anybody wants to look at it afterward. I wouldn't say it's an angry letter, but more than any other letter, he really lays out his, his philosophy uh, of, of progressivism. Uh, many of you know that Eastman was a lifelong kind of diehard Republican. Um, he loved big business, obviously, but at the same time, he was a progressive, and he liked surrounding himself with progressive people, um, you know, tackling the world's problems together, being creative, brainstorming. And it's in this uh, response to Robeson in 1929, which was actually written the, uh, the day before the stock market crash in 1929, where he lays out this progressive philosophy and how different life is uh, for children today. And it's a wonderful letter that I would encourage you to read uh, after we conclude here. Uh, as you can imagine, we got a lot of neat um, correspondence from famous people. And again, it's, it's all searchable now. I can find every sing single letter uh, in seconds. So here you find uh, Helen Keller, uh, Booker T. Washington. There's many, many letters uh, to and from Booker T. Washington. Uh, in the bottom there is Calvin Coolidge. And again, it's all searchable. We can find every letter uh, in seconds. Um, as many of you know who study World War I, America was neutral for the first two or three years of the war. And finally, when the United States did enter World War I, we were not ready. It took the better part of a year just for the United States to mobilize. So they, the Navy put out a call for uh, eyes of the Navy. Um, and Eastman responded by sending a few pair of his binoculars, personal binoculars, to the war effort. As you can see, these letters are signed by Franklin Roosevelt, who, before he was president, before he was governor, he was assistant secretary of the Navy. So um, a lot of correspondence between uh, Roosevelt and Eastman uh, over the years. 
Many of you have read of the story or heard of the story about Hero. Uh, Eastman had Hero, a German-trained uh, police dog, uh, in the mid-1920s to kind of guard the, the house. Uh, in 1924, there was an incident with Eleanor Palmer. Uh, she kind of snuck into the basement to hear some music. She was not invited to the house. Uh, and sneaking through the basement to hear the music, uh, Hero encountered her and really did a number on her, uh, messed her up pretty badly. Uh, fortunately, George Eastman's doctor, Dr. Mulligan, was there that night, so he attended to her. Uh, but it did kind of result in a lawsuit that eventually was, was settled out of court. Uh, but we do have all that paperwork about um, Hero, the German uh, shepherd. And I think uh, shortly after that, Eastman did get rid of, of, of Hero. I do want to touch upon the safaris. Uh, sometimes I think here at the museum we kind of, rightfully so, uh, shy away from you know the safaris and dead animals and posing with dead animals and stuff. And I get it, but one thing that became very clear to me when looking at Eastman's letters with Carl Ackley, uh, the Museum of Natural History, Martin, and Osa Johnson, it became very clear that they had a different mindset back then. Now, was going on safari what with, uh, rich white men did to kind of strut their stuff and, and show how manly they were? Absolutely, yes, that happened. But they did have a very different mindset. In their view, the game of Africa was doomed. These animals were going to disappear, uh, and one of the ways that these animals could be saved for posterity was by going to Africa, photographing them, um, uh, making motion pictures of these animals so people could see these animals in motion. And yes, you know, killing some to bring them back to the uh, Museum of Natural History. But it wasn't all, you know, for the sake of slaughter and manliness and masculinity. They did have some very good motivations for saving these animals for uh, posterity. It was really neat to see Osa Johnson's letters to George Eastman. She clearly, I mean, I, sh I should say he clearly had a very sweet place in her heart. Uh, she very much confided in George Eastman. When it came to the time after the safaris where Martin and Osa Johnson toured the country, going to theater after theater after theater, showing their motion picture films of Africa, they hated it. They, they hated show business. It was awful. They just wanted to go back into the wild. And uh, we have many more letters from Osa to George Eastman than from Martin to George Eastman. But she clearly looked up to Eastman, and the relationship there was something uh, that was really neat uh, to see. As many of you know uh, from reading uh, Betsy Breyer's biography, Eastman did have a girlfriend early on in his youth. Uh, she ended up moving away to pursue a music career. Some people surmise that that might have been one of Eastman's later motivations for making the School of Music here in Rochester so that Rochester wouldn't have to lose people like Susan Brown. Uh, after many, many decades, she did end up getting back in touch with Eastman. And as you can see here in 1927, she starts her letter essentially by saying, still I am haunted with thoughts of you and days long gone. She describes sitting in her rocking chair with a fire and a song came on the radio that made her think of George Eastman and so she had to write him. So towards the uh, the twilight of their lives they did end up getting back in touch and that relationship was neat to see in correspondence. Uh, she did end up coming to Rochester to visit him here at the house. Uh, he did make a trip out to California to visit her in Pasadena uh, but seeing that relationship rekindled later on was, was really neat to see. Um, out of every letter uh, that was a little flirtatious, this one takes the cake. Uh, 1923, a uh, woman by the name of Harriet Lyon got in touch with Eastman. Um, and I'm going to read it to you. Uh, it is a bit hard to read. 
but this is in 1923. She writes Eastman saying, you can recall a day 20 years ago of driving past a woman on Lake Avenue said to be very beautiful and attractive as she was about to cross the street. I had never had an opportunity to see you at such close range before, and I looked at you intently. You returned my gaze, and as my eyes followed you, you looked back very pleasantly at me. She's very humble. Uh, that, that was not unusual in my case. I was accustomed to admiration, but never had I experienced such a sensation as passed through my body like an electric shock. I knew I had seen the man I should have met years before. Whoa, she's laying it on thick, isn't she? Now, this letter goes on for several pages. Uh, what did she want at the end of the letter? Money. She wanted money. Uh, she was a gold digger. She was after his money. But yeah, uh, lovebirds, use that line uh, sometime and tell me how it works. <laughs> we talk a lot about here about the women in George Eastman's life, the women who had a, a, a deep impact upon his outlook and domestic view. So obviously we talk about his mother, we talk about Josephine Dickman, we talk about uh, Mary Mulligan, Adelaide Hubble. He did surround himself with women that he really admired and uh, got their opinions on a variety of issues. One of the women that I think we overlook is Theta Quay Franks. Uh, Eastman met her and her husband Robert aboard the Galea in 1890, uh, and they ended up becoming lifelong friends. They didn't see each other a whole lot, but they did write back and forth quite a bit. Uh, and Eastman clearly had a, a closer relationship with Theta than he did with Robert. Robert was Andrew Carnegie's uh, financial secretary, and so through Robert, Eastman was able to meet Andrew Carnegie aboard the Galea in 1890. But Theta was actually quite famous in her day. She made a lot of books on efficiency in the household, challenge to housekeepers, the reward of thrift. Uh, during World War I, she made a book um, on uh, organization for war service and uh, recipes for during the days of uh, World War I rationing. Uh, so she was actually quite famous, and Eastman and her corresponded quite a bit. So when we talk about the women in George Eastman's life, don't forget uh, her, because I think she was very important. In 1908 and 1909, Eastman received a couple uh, handwritten letters from the Black Hand Gang, and they were demanding $60,000, or they would kill him, or poison him, or blow his place to hell. Uh, was this a gang or was it a couple fourth graders? Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know. Nothing ever came of it. He doesn't touch upon the threat in any of his correspondence. I imagine he did show it to the police, but nothing ever, ever happened. Uh, I'm going to conclude here this afternoon with two bizarre letters that really just had me scratching my head when I found them. Uh, the first is a letter from John Tweer, who I believe was a Coast Guard uh, sailor. He wrote Eastman in 1918, and apparently one day while in the Gulf of Mexico, he found a package floating on the sea. Uh, he opened up the package and found apparently George Eastman's diary, uh, telling what a oh, there goes the mouse, uh, telling what a hard time Eastman had. Oh boy telling what a hard time Eastman had building up his uh, company and what a hard time he was having, but it, he knew he had the makings in him to succeed. Uh, and at the end of the letter, here's the thing. He writes saying, I would like to loan you some money to help you along. I am broke, but if you need money very badly to help you out, I will try and send you what is left out of my next month's pay, which is only a few dollars, but it might help you a little. He has no idea he's writing to the sixth wealthiest man in the entire world. Uh, 
but what a bizarre, like I found this letter and I was just, what is going on here? I know that Eastman was on a, a yachting trip in uh, 1913 in the Caribbean. How George Eastman's diary ended up in the Gulf of Mexico five years later, I, I, I don't know. I don't know how this happened. Uh, there is no follow-up to this letter. Um, I should point out that whenever Eastman hand-wrote a letter to someone, we don't have a copy of it. But everything that we do have outgoing-wise, if he went through his secretary, we have a copy of it. So we do not have a copy of any follow-up letter, but it does make me wonder if Eastman did ever get this diary uh, back. But nothing like opening up someone else's diary and reading every uh, page. But uh, it was funny, but at the same time, it gives you hope in humanity that this down-on-his-luck sailor would be willing to... Uh, give some money to Eastman with his next paycheck. Okay, who's ready for the grand finale? You ready for the grand finale? All right, I'm going to click the button here. You all are going to see a letter. I really, really hope that you're able to read it. I hope the print is big enough. If not, let me know and I'll read it. But you read it and tell me what's happening here, all right? This is a letter from one of George Eastman's oldest, uh, best, closest friends, Albert Fenn. If you need help reading it, let me know. Can't read it? All right. So he writes Eastman in 1910. Here we go. So this is in March 1910. My dear George, I have your letter of March 5th. Also your announcement card from Paris. You certainly are a peach. The girl must be very nice, but it's a wonder to me that you would not notify your friends before doing such a rash thing. How am I to know where to send a present? I have been saving my money for quite a while and should have felt like doing something nice. Your announcement card explains one thing which has been bothering me. I can readily understand now how you came to get tied up in regard to the extra dividend. When a fellow gets married, he generally gets things all balled up, and of course I can realize now that you are married, that you will need more money, as it is more costly for two to live than one. Uh, give her my best love and tell her if I did not know you so well, I would feel sorry for her. <laughs> so what's going on here? What happened in 1910? Did he get married in Paris in 1910? Uh, there's no evidence uh, that Eastman got married in 1910. There's absolutely no other letter that touches upon it. Our best guess is that Eastman was playing a very elaborate joke uh, uh, on his good friend, Albert Fenn, um, sending him an announcement card and a letter about how he apparently uh, got married in Paris, kind of kind of Vegas style. But you can imagine me reading this letter and rereading it and rereading it, just going, "What? What happened here?" Uh, but I mean, it has to be it has to be a joke. There's there's no other. Well, yeah, yeah. Ah, perhaps there you go. But that was uh, a neat find. Uh, so to conclude, again, that took me the better part of four or five years uh, going through all those letters. And literally within a week of finishing uh, this giant project, we get more boxes of correspondence uh, from the University of Rochester for me to catalog. So it literally does not end. Uh, so the work goes on. So uh, if you have any questions, stick job around. Security. Yeah, exactly, job security. But thank you all for coming out this afternoon. And if, there, if there's a lot of questions, we have Betsy, we have Kathy, we have me. I think with our powers combined, we could assemble the ultimate George Eastman answering uh, machine. So go ahead. Uh, two quick questions. Uh, one is uh, the, with that uh, onion paper. Mm -hmm. Was uh, carbon paper not around in those days? 
Good question. Uh, I do not know, uh, but apparently the letterpress process had existed from the um, late 1700s, uh, so it was a very old process that really came to be uh, popular in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And then the other, I'm sorry. I was going to say, I don't know when Carter's paper came in, but at the University of Rochester, Rush Reese's letters were copied, were in letterpress posted until 1910, then in 1910, he began to use carbon paper. Carbon paper. Hmm. Uh, so might have been on the cost of it or whatever. Sure. Um, the, other, the other question is sort of more of an observation. As a mm -hmm. person, as an archivist, historian working with this material, mm -hmm. do you feel great sympathy for the next generation who are dealing with people who use email? <laughs> oh, geez. <laughs> Uh, that's a that's a scary thought, you know. Uh, as an archivist, you know. Thought that biographers of the future are in deep doo doo. I mean, really, you know, what are they going to do? Yeah, you know, we have that conversation at this institution all the time, um, and I think there are some um, correlations between you know physical photographs, digital photographs, physical letters, uh, emails. It is a really really big question. Some people even here at the museum, uh, believe in the, in the permanence of digital photographs. Others uh, vehemently uh, do not. But it really does make you think, uh, you know, how, are, how is posterity going to make my biography, uh, for example? I, I, don't, I don't know. But. Go ahead. As an archivist, how do you feel about them dropping out teaching cursive in schools? That's very unfortunate. Uh, I'm a big proponent of reading, uh, learning to read and write cursive. Um, in a digital world, it's not obviously used as much, but some of these letters would not be able to read. So if you go into history, you need to learn that cursive. George Eastman himself did not have very nice uh, cursive handwriting, but being here for seven years, I can, I can make out uh, every word. But it is an essential skill when you're dealing with archives. Yeah, uh, back there. Uh, you mentioned 1914, the party he had here with like 900 people. Mm -hmm. I'm just finishing off a book by Henry Clune, The Rochester I Know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In that book, he mentions that there was another party, I think it was at Warren Whitney's house that same night, and that it, it upset a lot of people, and people were invited to both parties, and those that uh. didn't go to Whitney's party and came to George Eastman's party, George Eastman never really had another party like that again, mm. and they were never invited to Whitney's again for a party. So were there any correspondence about how upset, and Whitney's wife never would go into Eastman Theater because she was so upset that George had a party at the same night. That's funny. Uh, I, I had heard from Kathy and other people about this kind of thing, but in George Eastman's correspondence, there's nothing about this little uh, feud. Uh, the neatest thing that I get to do every year, Kathy and I discuss this all the time, we consult our collection on a daily basis for quick, uh, easy answers to emails, to phone calls, to visitors, but we don't have time just to research things uh, thoroughly. Uh, Kathy has joked around a few times that when she actually retires, maybe she'll come in and actually read these letters <laughs> because we just don't have time for it. So we consult quick uh, for quick questions all the time. The only in-depth research that I do uh, is every year for the Dutch Connection exhibit when I go back year by year and research exactly what Eastman was up to a hundred years prior. And it's, uh, you know, it, I really do read every single letter from exactly 100 years ago in order to make this exhibit. So, um, to be honest, I know the years 1911 to 1917 uh, really well, but prior to that, I just I haven't had that in-depth research uh, to do for it. Uh, but if I'm here till 2032, uh, hopefully I'll get a chance to keep doing that year by year. Um, but I, I do not remember seeing anything like that uh, in the letters themselves. Go ahead. That picture you had up on the mouse and the little boy to the left. Mm -hmm. 
It could be. I'd have to go back to that original letter uh, from Joseph Thatcher Clark. Um, I, I don't recall there being a name on it. You know, they, they would typically say, "Just here's an example of you know a, a photograph or a postcard." Of the family, and he looks very similar to hmm. the Cyrus little boy. It could be. I'll have to go back to that um, spreadsheet and see if it's mentioned in the letter. But again, I, I did not read uh, every letter. I just skimmed it just to see what it was uh, about. Go ahead. When you were um, talking about his early years and uh, his father died when he was six or something like that, and then you said something about his father's friends and said something about a Eastman Institute or was mm -hmm. is that a, I mean, would we know that school by another name today or it, that? it became Everest, am I? Yeah, Eastman did not know his father very well, but he definitely got the genes uh, for handwriting, bookkeeping, accounting, meticulous attention uh, to detail. But his uncle had some of those schools also because they were in Poughkeepsie. Yeah, Poughkeepsie all over uh, upstate New York. And actually, if I recall correctly, at um, many of you know about the uh, Columbian Exposition in Chicago in 1893, um, uh, there was actually an exhibit on commercial colleges um, and George Eastman's father was uh, featured prominently in this exhibit, so he really was looked at as a leading figure, a leading national figure in the in the development of commercial colleges. They had a big picture of him up at the Chicago uh, Exposition in 1893. Go ahead. So, how do you decide if the letter is personal or business if if it's not on letterhead and it mentions both things? Sure. Uh, that was his secretary's call. She made a call when copying his letters and filing it, whether it was business or personal. There is a lot of overlap um, between the, the, the two, especially um, Eastman most regularly wrote Henry Strong because Henry Strong was the president of Kodak, but he was never here. He was always in Florida or California or Hawaii. So on a regular basis, Eastman wrote him, you know, personally what he was up to, but also, you know, what the company was up to, what could be expected in terms of dividends in the next few months. Uh, so there's a lot of bleed over, but ultimately it was his secretary's call for those volumes. Yeah. Go ahead. Just a question here. I don't. I don't run down the hall. Usually, I'll show Kathy. Uh, we have some great volunteers up in our area. So Barb uh, was at the computer next to me sometimes when I would come across these neat, uh, funny uh, letters. But I just in the spreadsheet I made them um, in orange. You know, just to just to make them stand out. Um, it's getting to the point where we're starting to think about what we're going to do with the finding aids that I have created. Again, hopefully, um, hopefully this year the outgoing copy letters will be online. They'll be searchable for people. I don't know what's going to happen in terms of the incoming index because we just don't have the means at this point to scan uh, 49,800 letters. And again, that's the letter count. That's not the page count. It's much more than that. Uh, but uh, stay tuned for, for more details. Go ahead, Betsy. Date on that was March, May 13th, 
1933. I think the OCR did it wrong. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was the OCR that was wrong. Okay. Yep. We both noticed that it was after he was gone. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's the OCR that'll do that to you. Uh, Joe, did you have a question? It's a quick question. Who's, who's Eleanor Palmer, the one that uh, the dog attacks? Uh, what's Systems Magazine? And um, who's FIFO Moskowitz? <laughs> Joe, certainly you've seen an American Tale, one of the quintessential movies of the 1980s. It's a great movie. See it. Uh, Steven Spielberg, in a roundabout way, tells the story of his Russian ancestors coming to America, but he fictionalizes it in the form of a mouse. Uh, System Magazine was the best business magazine for uh, entrepreneurs, managers to get the latest, greatest uh, tips on owning a, a business, so it was a very prestigious uh, write-up that happened there. And Eleanor Palmer, I think she was actually a friend of one of the guard gardeners here at the house. And so I think he actually helped her sneak into the basement to hear this music. And I got to say, I left it out of the PowerPoint because it's kind of gross, but this Eleanor Palmer had a lot of bad luck. Uh, months afterward, when they were at their dinner table, one of their little babies was throwing a fit while uh, eating spaghetti, and the father came over to the baby to calm the baby down, and it got poked in the eye with a fork. And so, uh, yeah, just really bad luck with this Eleanor Palmer, but that's unfortunate. One more question. Yeah, go ahead. So since you've been doing this for such a long time, and since we're so used to picking up our phone and instantly getting communication, mm -hmm. how long did it take for these letters to go from Paris to Rochester, or Hawaii to Rochester? Um... Usually within two weeks, uh, uh, usually uh, 10 days, uh, maybe a little bit longer to get over to England. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the gaps in the collection is um, we do have an entire box of letters um, from Henry Strong to George Eastman in the early days. And one of the questions that I've had in mind for many years is whenever George Eastman went to Europe uh, to attend to business matters, Henry Strong would always come to Rochester to man the ship while Eastman was away. We do have Henry Strong's letters to Eastman while Eastman was abroad, but we do not have Eastman's letters that he wrote to Strong in Rochester while he was abroad, uh, particularly in the early years. So it really makes me wonder if somewhere inside Kodak State Street is more letters. You know, in a similar vein, we do not have George Eastman's early snapshots from his you know, uh, bicycling trips throughout Europe. So there's, there's stuff out there. The, the uh, optimist in me hopes that someday uh, these things will be found, his early snapshots and maybe a file of letters he wrote to Kodak headquarters in his early days. But, um, yeah, usually a couple weeks was all it took for the, for the mail to go around the world. Go ahead. Are you storing all this material in the fireproof area? Yes, uh, Kathy could answer that with more specifics, but we do have a vault upstairs that's temperature and humidity uh, controlled. Yep. Go ahead. Yes, he, he makes very clear in a couple letters that I've seen that he was not a fan of, of cemeteries and caskets and dead bodies and all that. He uh, was a, in favor of cremation, so that's what uh, he had him uh, done himself. Yeah. His remains are up at Kodak Park, and this is actually a matter of controversy. Eastman made it very clear uh, that he wanted to be buried. He wanted his remains to be buried in Waterville, which is where a family plot uh, for the Eastmans is. He actually bought uh, two spaces next to each other in case he ever got married. Of course, he never did, at least until that 1910 <laughs> letter that I came across. Um, 
But he, his wishes were not uh, fulfilled. Uh, people at the company and his niece thought it would be good to have him up at Kodak Park where his empire was. And go ahead. Yeah, there's actually a marble, a beautiful uh, marble memorial up at uh, Lake Avenue in Ridge. Um, it's very easy to see, and there's actually like an underground kind of complex where they did uh, bring his box of ashes underneath it. Uh, that's that's all I know. But of course, uh, it's a matter of controversy. What's going to happen? You can go to the second floor sitting room and see an exhibit about his death that also has a picture of his memorial. Mm -hmm. Any more? Go ahead. I have an question. All right. Yeah, we, we do store them uh, vertically in boxes very much like this. Um, you know, space is an issue uh, for many museums, uh, certainly ours. Uh, no, we do not uh, sleeve them. Uh, it would be great to have acid-free archival sleeves over every page, uh, but the expense would be enormous, and uh, the space required to store these letters would uh, greatly, greatly expand. So we still have them in the in the original boxes that we received them from uh, from Kodak many many years ago. Uh, but that's a conversation we have is how best to take care of these. Yeah. So if they're those thin onion skin or thin paper, are they sort of shifting in the, these boxes? Uh, no, the bound volumes of copy letters are bound. That's actually a book that's closed, and we have an archival uh, box for those that keeps them shut from uh, shifting uh, around. Uh, but every once in a while, when we come up with the funds, we do get one of those uh, volumes conserved uh, for posterity. But I'm pleased, you know, it has gotten to the point where we've left those original outgoing copy letters alone. You know, it used to be every time a researcher came into town, they would be shuffling through these things, looking for stuff. And because we photograph them in high resolution and have these searchable PDFs, uh, those original volumes can be preserved. We don't need to use them at all, which is a great, great thing. Go ahead, Betsy. Uh, that, I believe, is in the recent U of R gift. Um, for many in the room that don't know, when we became a museum way back in the day, we did not have an Eastman Legacy collection. We did not have a library. We were a photograph museum. We were a motion picture museum. So anything that had kind of been inherited over years uh, from uh, the Dryden family or from Kodak, uh, we ultimately made the decision to uh, give those to the University of Rochester where these paper kind of things could be better taken care of. But now that we have the Eastman Legacy Collection here, now that we have me, now that we have a, a team of people to uh, catalog these things, the decision was made recently uh, to bring those materials back. And I'm cataloging them. It's going to take me months to go through uh, all these boxes. But if I recall, um, I, do, I did find a letter from Horace, uh, to Horace. There are a lot of those early letters that were written up in the Rochester History Publication. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, when Eastman went through his secretary to uh, dictate a letter, she typed it up. We have a copy of it in these outgoing volumes. Uh, what we do not have a lot of is the handwritten letters. Eastman detested typing. He did not like typing at all. So if he wanted to uh, get off a, a quick note to somebody, he would handwrite it. But unless that handwritten letter has returned, we don't have it. But one of the neat things in these boxes is every letter that he handwrote to his niece in Chicago, it's, it's, it's in there. So I am getting a lot of uh, neat finds in there uh, on a daily 
basis. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, the return of any handwritten correspondence, what, what was it like retrieving that kind of thing? Where is it? Would that go on for years? Do you still get things? Yeah, I, I should point out that we don't uh, make concerted efforts to retrieve things, but we get surprised on a monthly uh, basis of people that have come upon things in their attic or, um, you know, a uh, gentleman a couple years ago had a, a, a shotgun, a rifle with George Eastman's uh, imprint on it. So we're always uh, pleasantly surprised when people get in touch with us, but we're not, you know, scouring the web for, for uh, letters or anything. But people come to us, and we're always pleased to get those things uh, back here. Go ahead. Did Secretary travel with him? She did not. Uh, to my knowledge, uh, she might have gone to Europe a couple times with him, uh, but one of the great, great things about Alice Whitney is everybody in Rochester uh, knew her as Alice Whitney, but many correspondents abroad knew George Eastman's secretary to be A.K. Whitney. Uh, they had no idea that his secretary uh, was a woman, and George Eastman came to trust her completely. He gave her access to his checking accounts. She could make uh, financial transactions on his behalf while he was away, and many business colleagues from abroad would actually visit Rochester and, and be taken aback that George Eastman had a, a woman secretary. So for the time period, she was actually given a lot of power. Um, so because of that, she was in many ways manning the fort while he was away. Sometimes she would take a separate uh, vacation while Eastman did his, uh, but most of the time she was back at the Kodak office manning Whitney Lane is named after, right? Is it really? Whitney Lane? Whitney Lane? Yeah. Oh, that's great. We, we thank our stars every day for, for Alice and what she was able to save. Uh, Betsy, you make the point in your biography that you believe whenever Eastman received a letter here at the house, he would respond to it and then put it in the wastebasket. But any letters that went to Kodak State Street are the ones that she preserved, correct? That's what I guess. Yeah, that's, that's guessing is the best we can do. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes, uh, he had a, a, a group of young uh, women friends, many of them uh, uh, business uh, associates and wives that would help him kind of set up for the parties. Eastman was uh, a pretty quiet person. He was not the life of the party at these large gatherings. Many people noted over the years that, you know, the party would go on and on, but Eastman would quietly slip away and go upstairs and go to bed. So he did very much rely on uh, women to kind of uh, be that uh, person during the parties. Yeah, go ahead. Mm -hmm. And I was just curious if you had read it, since he never had a family, what his thoughts were on, on babies and children and, and how he felt about not having children to leave mm. his legacy to. Well, I mean, as far as his, his business legacy was concerned, Eastman was very good at... Um, one thing you need to know about Eastman's business philosophy is depending at different points in Kodak history, his interests were more concentrated. So early on, he was obviously more involved in the, the scientific aspect of things. Uh, then he became uh, involved in the advertising. And then once he found somebody for advertising, he was a uh, treasurer. And so he kind of shifted his 
life around. But once he found people whom he trusted, he trusted them completely. And I found letters um, from the 1920s. Eastman essentially retired from the company in 1925. He still made daily trips to the office to check on things. But once he uh, found the people to head the various divisions, he trusted them completely. He did not micromanage them. So as far as the legacy of the company, he knew it was in good hands. And of course, he died during the Great uh, Depression. Um, all companies uh, saw a drop in stock after the, the stock market crash, but uh, Eastman Kodak was strong, and, and he knew that. As far as his legacy with uh, children or family, do you want to say something? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So, um, George Eastman's actually quoted as saying, you know, that if he had, because of his wealth, if he had children, and he had divorced his wife, he would have been Oh, it was an early letter. He something about he likes seeing their like he likes seeing babies for a little bit, but then it's time for them to go uh, on their way. Then then their backs, yeah. And actually, uh, two or three years ago, we had a um, a woman approach us who, uh, of course, this is getting more and more rare as time goes on. But she actually, as a child, would visit George Eastman. Her mother made pastries, I believe, nearby, and she recalls bringing a wagon with a, a cake or something uh, up the driveway, delivering it to uh, George Eastman's housekeeper uh, at the back porch, the employee porch, and you know, noting about the animals that she saw as she crossed the property. Uh, so uh, that was one of my neatest moments here in the seven years that I've been here was uh, talking to someone uh, that actually met George Eastman in person. Of course, Betsy has talked with many people who knew uh, George Eastman, Kathy uh, more than me, but you know, it's getting to the time where that's becoming very, very rare. So, yeah. Are there any relatives around anymore? There are relatives uh, through his uh, niece, Ellen Dryden. Uh, a couple of them are on our board of trustees. There are no more uh, Eastman direct descendants from his sister in the Rochester uh, area, um, but they're kind of scattered all over. Uh, back in 2004, when we celebrated the sesquicentennial of Eastman's birth, many of that uh, larger Eastman family came here for the celebration. Kathy is in touch with many of them, uh, but there are you know none right right here. But... Go ahead. Uh, what was the name of the orchestra that played for dancing? Uh, that I would have to look into. Uh, the, the name on top was uh, kind of illegible, but it, I think it said Davies or Davis or something is where he had it filed. But anything else? Oh, yeah, I wish. I wish. <laughs> that would have been great. All right. Thank you, everybody. Good job. And if you like, I've got a copy.